architecture this is our belated halloween episode where uh, we're going to discuss alan parsons projects tales of mystery and imagination his their debut concept album based on the works of edgar Allan poe the nice part about this one i thought for me was that i had never heard it so this was a good opportunity for me to check it out and really get a good idea of Alan Parsons' project. I mean, you know, as a kid, I, I, of course, I knew everything from Eye in the Sky or Don't Answer Me and that stuff, but this was, of course, a concept album, and it was, you know, I, I, much different than I expected, I guess. I, I shouldn't have been, it, actually, it shouldn't have been different than I expected, but it, it did. <laughs> it was. And in all fairness, uh, much like yourself, I'm, Love Alan Parsons' project, um, but I'm much more a fan of like from Eve up through like Ammonia Avenue, that period. I mean, I like Pyramid as well, but not quite as much. iRobot's okay, but I never got into iRobot or Tales of Mystery and Imagination or Pyramid the way I got into the stuff from Eve on. And then the stuff after Ammonia Avenue didn't really do much for me either. So there's like that sweet spot, and this kind of predated that. So this is a first time for me as well. I mean, I'd heard some of the material from it in passing, but I've never really given it a deep dive. So it, it was a fun experience for me as well. I think for me to, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm well, I'm not, not obviously, but, but I am a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan. I have been for, for many, many years. And it's been a, um, I mean, I've had, several books of his um i just sort of fell in love with him i think during uh, man i want to say the fifth grade somewhere around there when we uh started reading poe in in elementary school and it was i think i was really started to get into it in high school and then just sort of have just really really been a fan ever since there i think it was just the you know, the tone of his work, and, I mean, it was perfect. It was a perfect album to have for listening for Halloween. Oh, absolutely. And it, the vocalists, in particular, I, I've got to jump out and say the vocalists he chose for the songs were perfect. I, um, that's one area where I think the album really succeeded. Uh, Arthur Brown, for the, the Telltale Heart, he could not have picked a better vocalist. Like, the the madness and the insanity in his vocals on the Telltale Heart. I mean, that's what you'd expect given right. how the story goes. And uh, I'm, of all the tracks, I thought vocally that one was the most spot on. I mean, the vocals nailed it for what this story was supposed to be evoking. And not that the other, the, there were vocals on other songs that were actually stronger, but I didn't think they necessarily hit the nail on the head for what the original story had been trying to convey. And this execution-wise, I thought that song hit hit it the best. Yes, and I thought it was very interesting because it it you almost get some of that, you know, you're saying vocally the the vocal presentation 
was very like where it needed to be mad you had that sense of madness in there and in a normal take like if i'm listening to another album and if somebody was singing like that i would i would be like well no that's a bad take you need to you need to redo this but then i started to think of it and listen to it in the context of the the album and the story and it just fits perfectly in there because it's madness like there's madness in the voice and i think that really is what adds to the whole to the whole thing yeah i for the first time ever i gave the crazy world of arthur brown a listen because arthur brown did the vocals for telltale telltale heart and it i'd never heard of them before but they'd been big in the uk back in the 60s whatever um and the first track i listened to was fire which apparently was their big hit back in the late 60s and started to tell i'm the god of hellfire and brimstone in that same telltale heart voice and i'm like okay i can totally see see why alan parsons chose him to do the vocals for the song he is i don't think he could have picked a better vocalist for that song it it, it just fit and uh, kudos to alan parsons for knowing the right personnel to pick for every single song and that's a trend that was consistent throughout the entire project from tales of mystery and imagination all the way through Gaudi, and just he always knew the right selection of musicians to perform on any given song the right vocalist and, and to know that that started right when the project started at for arrangement and just knowing how to put all the pieces together to get that optimal performance yeah it was i mean it's 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 perfect, and I really shouldn't have been surprised um, about Alan Parsons because, you know, he was he was the producer or engineer on you know, on on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and I hear a lot of that in in this. I also heard a lot of Days of Future Past, like especially right at the beginning, and I thought yeah, that yeah. was interesting too. Um, so. I mean, it was, I guess that was just, you know, the type of progressive music that you got at that time. And of course, with concept albums and everything that was coming out at that time. But it was just a a kind of a neat uh, experience to kind of put that, put that all together, because I've always kind of admired Alan Parsons' work as an engineer. And just to see it kind of come to fruition in his own work um, was... It was entertaining. And I was I was listening to it while I'm sitting there painting doors in my house and I was still able to get I think the whole experience of it. And then I then I listened to it in my car and I was listening to it. I just kept listening to it and every time I'd listen to it I keep getting more and more and more out of it. Yeah, that's the thing about his music. Um it's there's so much depth to it. There's so much going on that you can listen to it several times and each and every time you pick up on something brand new you didn't pick up on the time before that because there's so much depth to what he was doing and at the same time he it's not compressed it it doesn't feel like there's too much going on there's just enough but some of it is so subtle that you never you, no possible way you can get it all in the first listen and they're just Alan Parsons' project is just one of those bands you need repeated listens to really fully appreciate all the gears that were turning in his mind to put some of this music together. And that's that's what I kind of just got out of listening to it. I mean, 
I, I, you know, when you when you first told me about that, that this is what we would be listening to, and I'm going to be hearing this Alan Parsons project, which again, you know, I'm thinking breakdown and time and eye in the sky and all these songs that I knew later. Uh, and then I started thinking, I was like, oh, but it's Edgar Allan Poe. And that's going to be really cool because I really love Poe and I really love his poetry and his stories. And, but I was, but then I was kind of apprehensive that, well, what, what's that going to sound like kind of adapting Poe to music? And of course they talk about that in the, there's some, some monologue in there and about, um, music with, with words and, or music with Poe, with, uh, uh, something of his poetry and music without it's, it's just music and so I thought that was kind of interesting and and it was, I, I just overall it was just really enjoyable but it's definitely like you said I had to go back I had to listen a couple of times and I just pick stuff up here pick stuff up there and just a, just an enjoyable enjoyable time very sort of eerie of course too um, you put the lights down low and you could definitely get a little creeped out by it I imagine yeah yeah what I found interesting was the the Orson Welles bits. I read those were recorded when the album was first recorded, but they didn't make it on to the first cut. They didn't make it on until it was re released in '87. So, I'm I would, when I listened to it like second and third time, I was trying to imagine what it would have sounded like without the Orson Welles uh, monologues on there, and I don't think it would have worked anywhere near as well because all the music and all the other stuff was still there, you know, like a dream within a dream, the music portion was still there on the original version. It just, they took out the Orson Welles. And I just don't think it, I couldn't picture it in my head and I didn't really have the energy to try to find the, ori a ver the original version out there to see what it would have sounded like without him, just to see maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see where I could be. It, it's Parsons. It's like Parsons realized that he missed the boat on that, and, he, and that's why he went back in '87 and put that back in, because I I think it adds so much to the whole presentation. Yeah, and he just has one of those voices that's very absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those. It's like a Vincent Price type thing. I mean, mm. you wouldn't have Thriller wouldn't be what it what it was without Vincent Price on there, and I don't think you could have done this in that way. And, you know, I think that was probably what led, led me to sort of associate it with, you know, like Days of Future Past from the Moody Blues. The orchestration, too, is very similar, but it's that spoken word and just that sort of just the ominous tone that he sets in his in the voice that he had. And I... I <laughs> I don't want to digress too much, but I, I you brought up Orson Welles the same when you had mentioned it to me. It was the same day that I found out that Orson Welles had also done the Unicron in the Transformers movie from 1986 or whatever, <laughs> and I had no idea he'd done that either. So you know, another great piece of uh, pop culture uh, that <laughs> that he graced <laughs> graced us with with his voice. Yeah. Yeah, I and I I heard he was. Um, I don't think they ever actually showed him, but he was. They cut all the scenes. He was supposed to be in Magnum. He was Robin Masters on Magnum, but they never actually showed him. 
Hmm. So he was the he was the guy that Thomas Magnum was house sitting for. He was Higgins' boss, oh. <laughs> but they never actually showed him. So it, I I can see it. I can totally see it in my head. But it, it's unfortunate that they never really used that to the to their full advantage. But yeah, I'm, I can't think of anyone else they could have picked to have done that. I mean, yeah, they could have gone with Vincent Price because that would have been before Thriller. Um, and I mean, they, by 87, he had to use Wells because he'd used him in 76 and just hadn't put it on there. But he almost could have gone in and had that be done by Vincent Price and banked on the success of Thriller if he'd wanted to. But right. kudos to him for going with what he'd originally recorded with Wells. Yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't know if we have anybody like that. I mean, you know, I guess those are the days of the the, the kind of the horror days of the seventies and in or sixties and seventies and you know a little bit in the eighties, but where you had like these such like recognizable voices, and, and now I don't know. I mean, I can't point to anybody right now that I'd say, okay, well that's uh that's a recognizable. I mean, other than like Morgan Freeman, but that's not a a recognizable James Earl Jones, I suppose, yeah. might be the closest. And actually, he did The Simpsons when The Simpsons did Edgar Allan Poe's works, including The Raven. Oh, I remember. I love that one. That, that was my favorite Treehouse tree of Terror. That that was hilarious. And that was James Earl Jones was was reading that. <laughs> yeah, that that's a classic. I mean, Nevermore. And having the little Bart uh, Raven there, but yeah, I mean, it, but you know what? If that's what it takes to expose people to Edgar Allan Poe's work, um, the work of a borderline madman, I, I think mm-hmm. that, uh, or at least somebody with some internal issues. I mean, let's let's be honest. You can't write that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, there are definitely some issues at play with him. <laughs> made for the it's a fine line between genius and madness they say and that can i think you kind of see that with some of the musicians of the like 60s and 70s like brian wilson wasn't exactly the most sane but he was an absolute genius in the studio i mean edgar Allan poe was that for his era i mean he absolute genius of literature but he was a little off <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I, I think there is a fine line. And we've kind of alluded to this before. There's definitely a fine line between uh, creative genius and uh, lunatic. And they all seem to really <laughs> straddle that line. But, yeah. but hey, I mean, it's 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 brilliant. And, you know, I think the album was was is brilliant. Now, I, I can't bring it up without saying that there still are quite a few people that will look at and say, well, you know, the concept albums and it's, you know, it's, it's sort of pretentious and like, why would I want to listen to that stuff? And blah, blah, blah. And I, and I, I, I've just always kind of, I mean, people say that about dark side of the moon too, or some of these, you know, concept albums and there are a lot of the moody blue stuff and, you know, some of the Alan Parsons project stuff. And and I I don't think it, I think it was just an an attempt to be theatrical in a way um, that wasn't 
that hadn't been done. And there was so much going on in music in that era of people taking chances sonically and lyrically and, and musically and trying out a bunch of new instruments and a production techniques that it's just, I mean, what's wrong with a little drama? What's wrong with a little theatrics in music? The, the thing I kind of appreciate about it is when, when you go with a certain concept, you are reining it in to a certain level where you have to be creative within a certain very finite spectrum, which forces you at times to be even more creative because you don't want to step outside certain lines. So you're forced to be even more creative to make sure you stay within that concept. Um, it's like certain forms of poetry. There are rules to certain forms of poetry, which means you have to be a bit more creative to make sure the words you use have the right number of syllables and that kind of thing. And sometimes you have to get creative with which words you use. And I think concept album is to music what you get with poetry, with like iambic pentameter and the sonnets. Right. And uh, just you get that, you really have to refine what words you use, how you use them. Well, Parsons just did took that away from poetry and pulled that into music. He said, okay, here's this finite concept I have to stay within. What can I do? How creative can I get within that individual concept? So I I just really appreciated that. I, For the most part, I think he was successful on just about every, other con every one of the concept albums he did. Uh, some more so than others, but this one I I don't think he could have been much more successful with s staying within that concept throughout the whole thing. Oh yeah, without a doubt. And you know, and it's it's sort of interesting. I I I think it's interesting, and might not be interesting to anybody else. But um, just when I listen to to these types of albums, and I sort of sit there and I try to imagine the story because there's you you have a concept it's a story you have to understand the story for to really understand the album and it's not like it's not like an ariana grande and it's no offense to ariana grande although i'll i'll, I'll offend her all i all i want to but the <laughs> it's it's not like that where you don't have to you can just put it on in the background it's you know when i was talking in our lost episode of about dark side of the moon and how it changed my life and we'll we'll double back to that um sometime in the future it was because i sat there my dad sat me down he put headphones on my head he put dark side of the moon on there and he turned the lights off in the room and he said you sit in this beanbag and you listen to this album and you immerse yourself in the album and you will it will change you the way you look at music and he was absolutely correct this is one of those types of albums. It's one of it's yeah. one of those that you in order I mean I can do it while I'm painting the doors in my house, but at the same time it's one of those where I have a set of headphones I'm wearing a set of headphones right now. You know, I'm in my home studio and I can work that and listen to it and that's what I want to do. I want to be immersed into it. I want to forget and close my eyes and lose myself and that's that's a different type of listening experience than you might get listening to you know, Ariana Grande. She, okay, so she's going to be the one I'm going to pick on for this show. But, I mean, it's different. I mean, it's, you know, it's different than that. I've got a good, you know, it's got a good beat. I can dance to it. This is an immersive experience. And 
And I think that, and that's what they were going for. I mean, if you listen to it, like I, I put it in my earbuds cause I was listening to it. I was, I did, did a 5k today and I actually was listening to it a little bit there and I could hear it, you know, sonically in my, in my earbuds. And I mean, it's not great running music by the way, but I, I don't think that was the point. I don't think that's what he was going for, <laughs> but it, it, it's definitely, you definitely get focused on the music and you forget that, you know, you don't like running like as much, especially as much as I don't like running. Um, I like doing, I like running in events, but I don't like actually like just going and doing it for fun. Um, but you know, I, I think it's just, that's that we could use a lot more of that because right now we live in sort of this passive society and, uh, you know, in the way we interact with, um, with things and, and I know people will disagree with me and they'll say, no, we're more active than ever because we're on social media and we're all doing this. And I was like, well, that doesn't mean that we're active. It just means we're engaged differently. But I mean, when you, you become an active listener is what I'm talking about when you listen to an album like this. Yeah, there's it's, just about all of Alan Parsons' albums are like that. They got that you have to actively listen because there is so much going on that and it it's not limited to this one, but knowing that this was their first, this planted the seeds of all those other albums that I really appreciated that came after this. Um, I'm I felt like shame on me for taking so long to get back to this one <laughs> because this is one that started it all. This was the one that the whole all the wheels in motion. And the other big irony here is I want. I went through an Edgar Allan Poe phase like yourself where, yeah, I listened, I read a lot of the stuff, was really into his work. So I have the complete tales and poems of Poe. Love the Raven. I I think I might even prefer his poetry over short stories in some regards, but um, Telltale Heart, Casca Montiato, just great stuff. And I at some point made a transition kind of away from horror into sci-fi with Isaac Asimov. And who did Alan Parsons go after after this? Asimov with his iRobot album. So it's, it's wow. almost like <laughs> I followed the same trajectory he did I'd, several years later. So we might have to circle back around and tackle iRobot at some point. But yeah, this to know that this set the whole thing in motion and a lot of people might have thought hey this guy's biting off more than he can chew i mean that's quite a heady concept to tackle for a debut album and but like you said you look back at dark side of the moon he was the engineer on that well maybe it wasn't as it wasn't he didn't bite off more than he could chew because dark side of the moon was on equal par and not only did he arrange this he arrange uh, Tales of Mystery and Imagination and produce it. And he just took some of those ideas that he had just merely mixed for Pink Floyd and put his own stamp on. He heard these other ideas and he found his own voice through mixing that album. And just, there's a natural evolution. I mean, fans of Floyd, I highly recommend taking this as like a next step. Yes. I would completely, completely agree with that. And I was, I think that's what I was enjoying so much of it is being a, a Pink Floyd fan. I, I heard, 
I mean, you, it's not just Pink Floyd. I, like I said, I heard some some Moody Blues, early Moody Blues on there too, but I'm listening to Pink Floyd and I'm hearing in some of these songs, I hear so much influence of of like early Pink Floyd, like uh, CMLA Play and Arnold Lane and that Pink Floyd. I heard some of those types of riffs and and rhythms and and arrangements in this in a couple of places and then i also hear some of you know alan parsons later stuff the seeds of that music later on i mean it was just so uh, it it was a real i mean for a debut especially i mean that first of all who goes with a concept album as a debut that's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that, that's in a word that's ballsy that that was really ballsy and I, but it worked i mean and because it worked that's the that's a pattern he chose for the rest of the project's albums to varying degrees of success but um true yeah it, it was just so well done yeah i i've i i, I think we had mentioned i think we you and i kind of chatted about this a little bit and i said you know in the very beginning in the very first um part of the album there's the musical arrangement is very reminiscent of what like the guitar solo from breakdown at the at the end um could be played over the music in the beginning of this album so it's it's very very close to to that and so i think that just kind of shows you know that that you know that it's that's Alan Parsons. I mean, that's that's who he is, and right. and I thought the other thing is interesting is when I found out that Eric Wolfson, who who shared co-writing on most of this, and um, did a lot of vocals in the Alan Parsons project over the years, he um, he did an album on Edgar Allan Poe in like 2009, so before he died, I guess. But that was um, he did kind of a version of the Raven on that, so it's like. Apparently, this is a theme for for these guys for their their lives, so they must have been very invested in that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on that. They there's just something about that that hit a nerve with them, and even when they drifted away from that, they seemed to come back to it later on. Um, much like with Eric Wolfson re-exploring this late in his life, late in his career. Um, Alan Parsons ended up producing Stephen Wilson's The Raven That Refused to Sing, which was largely influenced by Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Um, musically, it sounds absolutely nothing like Tales of Mystery and Imagination. <laughs> because Stephen Wilson, uh, lead vocals of Porcupine Tree, it does sound a lot more like Porcupine Tree than it does anything Alan Parsons' project ever did. But you can tell... The inspiration you can hear the homages even though they're in a completely different style you can tell the appreciation was there and to have parsons agree to produce it for him i mean and he's he's a great mix he's fantastic in the studio himself i mean he's remixed albums by marie and um jethro toll chicago he redid chicago 2 back in 2017 hmm. and he's a master at the soundboard he could have done it. He could have produced that himself, but to have the respect for Parsons to 
ask Parsons to step in and do that for him, and then Parsons actually agreeing to do it for him, I think says a lot. So that's a fan. If you ever get the chance, that's another fantastic album worth checking out because you get these two great musical minds working together and you hear nothing but respect between the two of them on that whole recording. And you can, you can hear the person in influence in the production, but the style is all Stephen Wilson. And I always appreciate, you know, I, what, what different people bring to bring to the table on things like that. And, you know, their own little sort of unique twist, but still being influenced by something like that. I, I've just, I, I, I'm so glad I was able to listen to this because, you know, I always kind of mark myself as a, I mean, I'm on a podcast for music for, for Pete's sake. So it's, you know, I feel like I've got pretty good knowledge about music and just to know that my Alan Parsons project, um, knowledge was subpar and have this now it's opened up all these doors and i'm kind of like okay but now i want to hear this and i want to hear this and i want to maybe follow that that journey that has started now with this yeah now i want to kind of see okay where did where did he go with this yeah there's a part on i forget which part it was i'd have to go back and listen again but on the fall of the house of usher there are the seeds of what would later become the song Lucifer, which is the opening track to Eve. It's an instrumental, perhaps one of the best instrumentals that APP ever did. It's got a very classical Eastern European vibe to it. And he laid the foundation of that in the fall of the house of Usher. And it's like, he, much like you were talking about with breakdown, going over a dream within a dream that they could almost go together there's that one part of the fall of house of usher that could go to lucifer it, the two it's like they complement each other very well and so parsons like knew he'd planted a seed there he's like i did something there i really liked but i wasn't able to really stretch out enough on it and he he just took that on the song lucifer several albums later and ran with it and took it to a completely different level so it's interesting to hear those seeds as a fan of the group itself where he just little bits here and there that you, you knew he would come back to later on and explore in a very different way and build on and tremendously build on uh, where he didn't really have a chance to because he was stuck within the confines of that concept and a time limit for how much you could fit on a piece of vinyl. Well, and it, you know what the other thing that kind of opened the door on on this was to me because I, I started thinking you know, what do I what do I even know about Alan Parsons project other than you know I am the sky which I think everybody knows and oh and and, and serious so the 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 Chicago Bulls opening song I think everybody knew that too yeah. uh, <laughs> and I think people forget well that's Alan Parsons project also but I didn't you know I, I think for all these years I kind of just they were always there and I just sort of just sort of didn't pay them much attention other than I knew who Alan Parsons was and I knew how important he had been to some of my favorite recordings, but I wasn't really aware of the stuff that he had done sort of separately. And to think that, you know, that just, like, it, oh, like I said, opened the door. So I started getting on YouTube and I'm watching all this and I'm like, hey, that's Alan Parsons like in the front there. Like I always thought he was sort of off on the side 
not really involved other than like in the engineering. No, he was sitting there, you know, he wasn't just on the side. He was writing and he actually did, does some singing now when they when they tour and like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't realize he was that involved with everything, but he was. Like it wasn't just him bringing a bunch of great musicians in for stuff. He was he was actively involved in the the creation of the music. Oh, absolutely. And they've it's interesting we going back to what you're saying about Pink Floyd hearing elements of Dark Side of the Moon on there shortly before after Dark Side of the Moon and before Tales of Mystery and Imagination he produced Ambrosia's debut album and that's got Hold On to Yesterday on it and one of the most musically adventurous and beautiful ballads I've ever heard I mean it is I consider Ambrosia to be prog pop they don't really prog rock but they're definitely much more adventurous than typical pop music. And there's stuff going on in Holding On to Yesterday that shouldn't be in a ballad, in a pop ballad, but it is. And you hear elements of that on Tales of Mystery and Imagination as well. And it no big surprise there because he's got three members of Ambrosia playing on Tales of Mystery and Imagination. He has four members of Pilot. He produced... Um, at least one of their albums that they're known for their one hit wonder of the seventies known for magic, uh, which is used in a Ozampic commercial. Now, unfortunately it's been repurposed, but um, it's, <laughs> he's, he recognized, I mean, yeah, they were one hit wonder, but he recognized these guys had more talent than that. That So he brought him aboard to play bass, guitar, drum on, Tales of Mystery and Imagination, and he did the same thing with the guys from Ambrosia. And you can hear some of the elements of those two groups, too. And those guys ended up being mainstays, making a lot of the music in the background. And he had a stable vocalist he'd use that had nothing to do with either of those bands. Some of those guys would do background, but he'd bring in he'd bring in the perfect vocalist for every song until Eric Wolfson really stepped up to the plate and decided to do most of it himself. Right. Um, but for a while there, he had like Lenny Zekatek. I'm not sure whatever became of him or where he'd been before then. But he does a lot of the stuff, I think, on Pyramid and Eve and even uh, Turn of a Friendly Card, I think. He was one of the go-to um, vocalists that was used. Um, trying to think some of the... Uh, Chris Rainbow was another one that was used besides Eric Wolfson. But he'd bring in these guys to complement this stellar musicianship of the bands he'd produced prior to forming the project and he had an ear for talent and he knew the right talent to plug in each and every song to get the most out of it yeah he had uh terry sylvester from the holly is also on that album um, yeah doing some vocal work which i mean it kind of you know all over the place but you're right i mean it was it was finding that you know not being constrained by, I'm only going to work with this group of people. And I think that's what allowed it, what made it different than, you know, like a regular band. It's like, well, we have four people in this band and these are who we use. He wasn't constrained by that. He was, he was like, well, I'm going to use uh, David, David Pack on this one. And, you know, like you said, with Ambrosia Joe Puerta um, as well. But it was like, now this calls for this group of people who fit what we're trying to do here. And 
I, I, I guess I would liken it to a little bit like what Santana has done over the years in the fact that he kept reinventing himself um, with new people. Um, I was like, oh, well, now it's 2000, so let's put Michelle Branch on here. Okay, well, that seems to work for, for now, and we're doing different things. So it's, it, it, you know, but it works. And you brought up, uh, it was, you know, I thought it was interesting because you brought up Ambrosia. Um, you know, what I think of Ambrosia, on the, especially on their prog pops days, nice, nice, very nice. I oh, hear a, I, I hear a lot of that influence on, um, or a lot of that kind of in this as well. And, and it goes a lot, you know, goes hand in hand, I think, with, based on what you were saying. Yeah, because yeah, after this one, he did also produce their so- second album, uh, Somewhere I've Never Traveled. And you can even hear some elements of Ellen Parsons' project on that album. Um, I think, th- I'm pretty sure those were the only two of Ambrosia's albums he produced. But it's interesting that their third album, Life Beyond L.A., even though he had nothing to do with that one, his fingerprints were still on it. You could hear that he'd influenced the rest of the band enough that they'd carried some of those influences with them to that album. So he had left quite of a footprint on their music even after they'd gone their separate ways as far as producer and band. Um, and I think there's still mutual respect there even after that happened. And I guess I would be remiss if I didn't, since we just talked about the Beatles last week, that Alan Parsons was involved with the production of Abbey Road and Let It Be for the Beatles. And so I, I think that um, is where I think I probably first heard of him. But, I mean, we just talked about them, and I, I think it's <laughs> like you just don't, I don't think a lot of people realize it. I mean, there's, some people do, but... He was his fingerprints are all over some of the greatest works of the sixties and seventies and early eighties. And well, absolutely. I mean I have the sky, like we keep circling back to that even. I mean that's that's a masterpiece. That is such a beautiful song. I mean that whole album's fantastic, but that song is just Eric Wolfson's vocals, they're perfect. I mean it's it's unfortunate. It took him a little while to realize that he already had a ringer, basically, as far as vocalists go. He didn't need some of these other guys. He already had someone there who'd been there all along who could handle this on his own and do a damn good job of it. I mean, Time and Eye in the Sky and Ammonia Avenue and the stuff Wolfson sang was absolutely gorgeous. And he's not a great singer, but he is the right singer for that material. Right. Yeah, don't answer me too was another one of those. I think that it it really, I think that was their last hit, but it's I think it's just a solid and another solid song and and being able to adapt. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised with 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 a guy like Alan Parsons. It, it's just because if if you look at his kind of history, you know, and it was funny. It's interesting because I was looking this up while we're talking too. And I, you know, I was saying about like, oh, the Arnold Lane and and seemingly play era of Pink Floyd kind of comes through on this album in some places. And then I look back and it's like, oh, he was the engineer on Adam Hart Mother. Okay, well, that, I guess that shuts me up. Yeah. And then <laughs> so I start to look at that and I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, there you go. And so that influence definitely comes comes through. And 
And then he, I mean, he was engineer on, on Al Stewart's Time Passages Near the Cat. And those are, I mean, I could do a whole show on Al Stewart, by the way, just on his lyrical ability. But, oh, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, but just that lyrical sensibility and, and, and melody, you hear that, too. And so I, I, it's just... It's just incredible to see how well he just identified the things that he liked from different groups that he's worked with and said, you know, this element is something that I can incorporate into this, into this bigger sort of album and concept and thought. And then, and then this is what we get. And it incorporates a lot of that stuff. And then it also sets up for his later work that we were kind of talking, you know, alluding to as well. So, I think this is that I think that's what makes this so great. Not just you know the Halloween aspect of it and all that, but just the fact that musically it really was sort of a watershed moment for him on his first album. So uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was very excited <laughs> to uh, to do that. But I'm just looking at some of his other stuff here, and like I said, "You're the Cat," "Time Passages." I mean, just I mean as an engineer. And I mean, I, wow. And that's just some of it. Ambrosia, like you said. So I, I've definitely got myself a new appreciation of Alan Parsons and the Alan Parsons project from this album. Yeah, it's, it really made me, I mean, I've, like I was saying before, that I've gotten the sweet spot of their era of material that was a little after this that, I would always circle back around to, and I had never really given this, given this album its due. And I'm so glad we did this, that I chose this as the topic for the show, because it forced me to do the same thing. It forced you to do, go back and really give this a listen where I'd never really given the fair chance it deserved before. And shame on me for not doing so sooner because it is fantastic. It's, it really set the table for it. The material that would come after the, the material that I had, already knew and loved and had grown to love over the past several years and to know that i'd missed out on this as long as i had kind of i'm kind of kicking myself in the ass or like i wish i'd listened to it <laughs> given it the attention it deserved far sooner than i have yeah i'm glad I, I at least had the opportunity to get a listen to it um because as i was kind of saying in one of the other shows when we were talking about the eighties, uh, nobody's making new eighties music because it's not the eighties. Right. So nobody's making this, this new stuff. So anytime I get to discover something that's new to me, it's, it's, I'm excited for it. And then it also, it's just always, I get, I get in this, uh, you know, I have this, uh, adult ADHD. So it, what it does is it drives me to be like hyper-focused on something so when I get really into it, I think that's why music's so good because it's always changing. It's always something that's new. You can't get like worn out. You can never learn everything there is to know about it. And for someone like me, that's perfect. So I get hyper-focused on, well, now I'm, I need to know everything there is to know about Alan Parsons. And I'm going to learn. But what that'll do is that'll lead me over to Ambrosia. And then I'll learn everything there is to know about Ambrosia. And that'll lead me over to something else. And... That's why that's why I love music and I love doing this because it gives me that opportunity to acknowledge that and and have an outlet for it. 
Yeah, I was having a discussion on Facebook with one of my friends who um, instantly it's because he and I are in the same music discussion group called Worst Worst Rock Albums Ever. And I think he's the guy who actually created that group on Facebook. But he, he'd been posting just on his regular Facebook about uh, some of the top singles of 76. And he mentioned The Raven by Alan Parsons Project. So I, I got to talking about the material from Eve. He said, musically, that's a fantastic album. Lyrically, I can't listen to it. It's so much misogynistic. And I was like, is it though? I mean, you, and individually, I, I'm just pointing you in this direction. If you want to, extra, Eve is my favorite Alan Parsons project album because it is conceptually, there's so much going on. And Parsons was so creative, almost too creative for his own good. Some might say he was, his le level of cleverness for his creativity in this concept was almost pretentious. I, I would disagree with that, but he the whole thing is about the battle of the sexes and yes, the lyrics are very misogynistic, but when I listen to it start to finish, when I listen to the music with the lyrics, if you listen to lyrics alone, it is horribly misogynistic. It is terrible. <laughs> it, it's the me too moment would, would burn it. It would <laughs> it'd go in a dumpster fire of albums. Um, but the music and everything, the whole message of it, is basically i think it's poking fun at misogyny which is why i like it it's taking it's taking this whole idea all these horrible lyrics but it's delivering them in such a way as it gives the to me it gives the opposite message of what the lyrics are actually saying yeah. it's it's to me it's poking fun at misogyny the lyrics are misogynistic but the way they're delivered is very tongue-in-cheek is very you shouldn't be taking these lyrics seriously is the tone I get from it. Um, so if you take the lyrics at face value, you probably live in a, in, in your basement, in your parents' basement and you hate Ray and star Wars and, and you think Luke Skywalker's <laughs> a bomb and, and Ray should be home cooking and doing her own thing. And you're one of those types. You, you know what I mean? That's well, I don't like very... Ray and star Wars for different reasons, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> whole other yeah, uh, but, show <laughs> but um i i do like her in star wars but that again that's that's another show and that's not music so. right um we might tackle that if we get to john williams so. correct yes but, but anyway the musically the seeds of eve were very much on tales of mystery and imagination musically speaking um like i mentioned lucifer before Oh, the the other notable the other notable thing about Eve, it's the only album where he has a song with a female lead vocal in the whole, whole of Alan Parsons project. It's got some where he has female background vocals, but the, um, Leslie Duncan, who was a British singer, um, she she wrote a song, um, love song, which El Elton John recorded, but she. From what I read, I, I did a little reading on her. Um, horribly frightened, stage fright, terrible stage fright, which is why she never really elevated her career to a level like, say, Joni Mitchell or Judy Collins. I mean, that was kind of her wheelhouse of where her music was, her songwriting was. She was a singer-songwriter. But her vocals on the one song she did floor me every time. I mean, 
they hit me like a ton of bricks because her vocal delivery is just so heart-wrenching and beautiful. And it's like Parsons knew he could not get a male to deliver a vocal like that, and it would not have worked for that song. And it goes back to knowing the right vocalist for the right songs. And he brought in someone he'd never used before and had never used since. Hmm. And it worked perfectly. So it's another reason why Eve is one of my favorites by him. Musically, it's a gorgeous album. And lyrically, it's got, like I said, misogyny, but with a delivery that says (laughs) anti-misogyny. Well, and and I think it's... (laughs) There was a lot of that um, that was going, at least I've seen in popular music, where lyrics get maybe misinterpreted or misunderstood or or out of context. And so, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that, if that's one of the cases there, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Now I want like I already said, I'm going down the rabbit hole, so I know I'll get to it probably in the next week. And, and then I'll be able to comment on it a little bit more, but I'm looking at the album cover of it. And if there's two women on the on the cover and uh, so I'm kind of, kind of interested now to hear about this. I mean, it, it was one of their more popular ones too. I think I got to number 13 or something like that on the album charts. So yeah, the one, I think the single on there was damned if I do. Um, but probably the most misogynistic of the songs on there is, uh, you lie down with dogs. Um, you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas. It's mm-hmm. it's not it's not a very it's not a very pleasant song. It's a very ins- insulting, misogynistic song. But I, the delivery on that to me also is it to me it comes across tongue in cheek. Um, and uh, just to drive this home a little more, you were Billy Joel once said that the song Captain Jack glorified drug use. He said, no, it doesn't. Have you listened to the story of the people in the song? They aren't happy people. They aren't nice people. They aren't good people. Are these people whose lives you would want to have? The answer is no. He said, if it's a cautionary tale against drug use, if anything. Right. So it's, it goes back to, and I think that's the story with that song too. It's, it says all these horrible things about women, but listen to, the men who are saying these things are these men you'd want to be hell no right (laughs) (laughs) and it's the the type of person that because of vocal delivery the type of person singing the song is not the type of person you want to be so it's not the behavior you would want to emulate so even though the the lyrics are horrible the the kind of delivery for them is like no i yeah i don't want to be that person so i'm going to stay i'm not going to act like that (laughs) yeah and now now I've got more listening to do at uh, on my way to work in the morning. Yeah, it's that's I get a lot. I get like twenty five minutes in my commute, so I listen to a lot of stuff on the way there and on the way back. It's usually enough for me to be able to listen to a whole album by the time the day's done, and so it's a good opportunity for me to really get it get you know a good chance to listen to some of these things that we talk about on the show, especially when you. When we're doing the, if you like this, then this, and I get to go and listen to, to some of those things, which is kind of an exciting, exciting thing because I'm always like listening to new th- new stuff. I was reading some of the uh, critiques of this album is that it didn't 
the critics were saying it didn't really capture the ominousness of Edgar Allan Poe's work. And musically, at times, I could kind of agree with that. Um, but where he made up for that was like we were talking before, he picked the right vocalists. And I think the vocals got that message across far more than the music did at times. Well, and the spoken word helped a lot with that. And I guess if you were listening to the reviews, you know, the the original version compared to the version that had Orson Welles on it, then I think that changed a lot of the tone as well um, in, in the album. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think Parsons realized that, which is why he made sure that got put back in when he re-released it in the 80s. Um, he knew it had been missing that, and it, it does really put an exclamation mark on things, I think. And knowing that that wasn't there initially, I think the critics, they had a point when it was first released because it did miss that. And without that, I think it would have, I think their critiques would have been very valid. <laughs> and Poe is one of those people, or one of those writers that it's all about the the tone and you can't i think i don't think you can you can recite it <laughs> like i but we we're talking about with vincent price and orson Welles and all that or even james earl jones on the simpsons you have to have like the right tone like it's it's one of those it's weird like you you can't just if i go and read it it's not going to be as scary as if somebody who's classically trained as an as an actor might because they just feel it differently and they express it differently and it's i think that that came through in the version i listened to which had orson welles on it more so than it might have if without it i now i'm trying to think about like what it would sound like without that and i think it would definitely be missing of a key part of it yeah, it's and it's Orson Welles. I mean, War of the Worlds. I mean, it is Orson Welles. I mean, you can't find a better voice. I mean, it's Unicron. He, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I almost have to put the touch from the Transformers movie on. You got the touch. Yeah, actually, and and you know what? I, I do want to do a, a show probably in the future. We we'll talk about like eighties soundtracks too i think that would be a great one and that's one of the ones i'm going to put on there that and uh rocky four and uh just because i was listening to there's no uh, tepper i was listening to that the other day yeah um the other vocalist that i noticed kind of surprised me leonard whiting he was he played romeo and franco zeffirelli's romeo and juliet and he was on the raven and that okay that, that's a deep cut <laughs> that's that's <laughs> someone i'd expect him to use at all and but it worked i mean the raven that whole nevermore 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 the it's i mean he made a pop song out of the raven i mean who does that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that's yeah I, I you have to have a special kind of uh thought process to turn that into a pop song well, any opposed works in that case. 
<laughs> True. I, I mean, and he, he had a great beat. It's catchy. It's it's really fun to listen to, and it's why the it's one of the singles from that album. Um, but it worked as crazy it was as it was. Um, the other one we haven't really touched on much is the system of Doctor Tard, Professor Feather, which I thought was also that was just fun song. I mean, it's but the that story itself is supposed to be dark comedy uh, so the fact that the song is fun plays to the theme of the stories so it's another instance where he actually did i think that's another one like telltale heart where he captured the story very well in the music because it wasn't one of poe's horror stories so much it was dark comedy and the song has that vibe to it uh yes and every well, I mean, everything of Poe was kind of dark. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it comedy, um, when he was trying to be scary, when he was trying to be drama, I mean, some of it was even a little political, according to some people. So, I, I mean, be, the way it got captured on, on this, to me, I thought it fit fine. And... Obviously, I mean, for a debut album, it was a top 40 album, and people people bought it, and it really set them up. I mean, I know their next album really set them up as a legitimate, you know, performing group, but it, I mean, this put them on the map. Well, it, it really did, and it's, um, it laid the foundation of, as we keep circling back to it, it really did lay the foundation of what was to come, and it it was successful. Otherwise what was to come might never have come. So he, he found something and he made it work and he made it work in such a way as he was able to go in that direction for the rest of the Alan Parsons project. Uh, And even into his solo career, he, he continued to do concept albums. So granted, I don't think they as well executed as the stuff he did with the project i think he really needed eric wolfson to bounce ideas off of and when those two their when their creative relationship ended i think both their careers suffered as a result because i think they really needed each other as a balance and i do like some of alan parsons albums after the project but none of them compared to anything he did with the project. Some of them are better than his later project material. I will say that much for him. Some of them are better than, say, Gaudi or uh, Vulture Culture, but um, I wouldn't go much further than that. <laughs> <laughs> like there, um, in when I was in high school, I was in a CD store and I was thumbing through and I saw Alan Parsons try anything once. And the album cover was very Pink Floyd-esque. I think it had people hanging upside down, hang on to like a bicycle wheel without the tire on it. Mm. It's just a weird, really weird, bizarre album cover that reminded me of something like Momentary Lapse of Reason by Pink Floyd. Had a very kind of out there kind of photo on the cover, very Salvador Dali-esque kind of thing going on. So I picked it up and sonically it's absolutely gorgeous. But concept-wise, I don't know what he was going for with it. Um, but it, I will say, yes, it was better than Gaudi or Vulture Culture. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I mean, it's 
I think I think we've sort of talked about it. it's so difficult to stay ahead of the game on on stuff and as as an artist and to to move forward and not be accused of well all you're doing is you sound like you sounded before or you should have sounded like you sounded like before and you see that so many times where you know it's like okay well you do this one album and then that's what everybody wants to hear and then the second one comes out and it's like i hate this because it's not what this one was well yeah but but then if you keep doing the same thing over and over again it's like well their stuff sounds the same so it's like i don't think you can win and you know he's obviously you know sometimes you take chances and they work and then other times you take chances and they don't and and that's a perfect example of it yeah absolutely and i mean fluid mac did that with tusk i mean it was absolutely nothing like rumors I think nope. it's a brilliant album, but it is nothing like Rumors. It is the anti-Rumors, and Lindsey Buckingham even said that is completely intentional. He That's what he was going for. He wanted to do something that was absolutely nothing like the album before, and I don't think he could have been more, more successful in that regard than he was. Well, I'm definitely one of those on the Fleetwood Mac side, and you know, we'll, we can talk more fluid mac on on some other episode too but it's that i think lindsey buckingham without lindsey buckingham i don't think you get a lot of the stuff later on i mean they were already a popular band but i think the addition to him stevie nicks with her voice but lindsey buckingham is so under appreciated i think for what he brought to fleetwood mac and the vision that he had and the way he worked in the studio and the way he crafted songs that were brought to him as just like these basic sort of things, he crafted those and made them into things. So, you know, that's what I think we we hope we can emphasize on on this podcast is kind of helping to tell some of those stories too, and letting people kind of realize that. Like you said, it's a fine line to walk. You don't want to get pigeonholed into a certain style, but at the same time you know what make you know it works so it's finding that treading that fine line of doing what works but doing it a little different each time so you aren't doing the same thing over and over again and some some bands are able to do that some are not um i actually appreciate even the ones that swing and miss i have more respect for them than the ones that just keep doing the same kind of thing over and over again because they know it works. They stick with the same formula. Um, another band that comes to mind is Def Leppard. They put out slang, nothing like anything else they ever did before or since. They tried something completely different. It didn't work. I mean, that album tanked, but I absolutely love it because they tried. They swung for the fences they missed, but they tried. They did something they hadn't done before. And there's an artistic integrity in that. Sometimes, even when it doesn't work, there's, hey, at least you tried. Uh, another comes to mind is Garth Brooks when he did his Chris Gaines thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it didn't work. It, it was a flop, but he at least tried. He tried to do something completely different than anything he'd ever done before. And I, I have respect for him for actually trying to do that, even if it was a swing and a miss. <laughs> well, I'm going to put a plug in, though, for Def Leppard's slang because work it out is one of my favorite Def Leppard songs. And that's on that album. So I will, they, they hit it on that one for me. Now it wasn't, I didn't know it was Def Leppard when I heard it on the radio and I bought the album uh, after I found out that it was them. 
but I mean, I I thought it was great. So you know, sometimes yeah, that's I've, what happens. Yeah, I I really enjoy that album it, because it sounds like nothing else they did before. I mean, and uh, going back to Toto, we've talked about in the past, very similar story there. Uh, Kingdom of Desire sounds nothing like anything they recorded before or have recorded since. And I, I sent an email to Steve Luke there once. I said, when I first got that album, I absolutely hated it because it sounded like nothing else you'd ever recorded before. Over time, the more I listened to it, I absolutely love it because it sounds nothing like anything you ever recorded before or since. Right. So the, the reason I used to hate it is the reason I love it now is because it did something they hadn't done before. And they, they tried something new and different. And to me, it worked, but might not have worked for anyone else. And I've... I got to say that much about Parsons and his solo career. He's tried to do a lot of different things and they haven't always worked, but at least he's trying. At least he's going in different musical directions than he was in the project. And when it works, it works well. And when it doesn't work, hey, at least he gave it a shot. Yeah. And in in this situation for this album for this week, it worked. Oh, it it very much worked. It it was the perfect stew of everything he had touched before this. as a producer, as a engineer, he he had all these all the right ingredients, and he took them and he put them together in his own way and made it his own, and he did something really special as a result. I agree. Normally, this is the part where I'd toss out if you like this and you might like this, but honestly, going back, I've never heard anything by any Australian group or musician or anything of the sort that's anything like Alan <laughs> Parsons' project, so I, I can't really do that with this week so that's that's a tribute to alan parsons so my hat's off to him (laughs) there's no one quite like him no no and i'm excited for next week you don't even know what it is um because i kept it in in the dark so long but um i think we're going to talk about um songs um with some of the like the best i guess it's kind of our homage to chicago in a way but I want to talk about songs that have horns in them, and I want us to come up and talk about some of the best ones that we can think of that have horns in them. And then we'll also talk a little bit about my my game that I keep teasing on here, um, which is also in the lost episode in the vault. But uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that, and we'll also have, of course, music news and all that as well. Yeah, there, there wasn't really a lot of music news this week. I mean, uh, Sean Connery died. That's not really music, but... That's that's the only news I can really think of for this week. Right. But so. I, I think it'll be fun to talk about, uh, you know, the things that got us, you know, us connected was, you know, that band, you know, that rock band with horns. But I think talking about songs throughout the years, including like how the influence, you know, what, how they got there and, you know, how I think it's just how Chicago got there. You know, so we could talk Blood, Sweat and Tears. We can talk the Beatles. We can talk grassroots yeah tower of power we can talk about all that and maybe go down some rabbit yeah some rabbit holes and uh expose some listeners to some new music absolutely and in that regard i will have some australian music i can toss in the mix (laughs) outstanding well i appreciate the uh, recommendation this week that really uh really made for some good listening for me especially as we headed towards halloween and that was that was good i appreciate that and it, it's been a great discussion. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm, it forced me to really give it the its due as well. So I, I'm, I think it was good on all fronts. It was. I, I look forward 
forward to what the future holds for some of the other stuff we come up with that takes us down some of these rabbit holes and uh, exploring new things that we might not otherwise have really given their due in the past that, or even listened to in the past. Yeah, that's that's half the fun of this thing. And hopefully the listeners can go along with us on that journey. Yeah, I, I did toss out a playlist for this week on Spotify. I'm, I do I'd like to try to figure out a way to export or create playlists on other services like Deezer, Amazon Music, um, Apple Music, some of the other services. Um, I only have a paid membership through Spotify, and I don't see the point in re- making that redundant on other services. But if there's a way I can figure out to make some of our weekly playlists uh, transfer over, I'll, I'll see what I can do there. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I look at them, and then I just load them into my – because I use Amazon Music. And so that's been, um, it's usually pretty easy to transfer them for me. Um, but I, I have to look at it first before I can do that. Okay. But it's, it, I mean, it's easy for me to do. Okay. That's good. Awesome. Well, that was a great discussion this week. I was really excited about talking about it and it turned out really well. Absolutely. So So you want to hit, you want to hit everybody up with the, uh, how they can get in touch with us and all that good stuff again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we can be reached uh, perpandrick at gmail.com. We have our Facebook group, Dancing About Architecture. Uh, just pop your head in there, uh, make comments, make posts, whatever you want. It's uh, As long as you don't get wild and crazy or get too blue or anything, I, I don't see any reason why I would get rid of anything you put up there. So... Feel free to toss out any ideas, suggestions, your own two cents on some of the music we've discussed this week and in previous weeks. Uh, and hopefully soon we'll circle back around and re-record our lost episode that got corrupted. And uh, Because unfortunately, I think that was some of our best discussion yet. And <laughs> True. <laughs> it, it, it bit the big one. Uh, thanks to no fault of either of ours it's just corrupt files things happen and that's what it is but um i think we'll be able to replicate some of that discussion at some point and uh bring it back to the forefront that was a great episode and we don't want you guys to miss out on it so we're going to bring it back somehow definitely well all right i guess that's all right. about it for this week and i'm looking forward to next week's discussion so until then till then it's been a been a great week and i hope everybody out there enjoys their their time and talk to you next week all right have a good one you too